All right, and welcome to this edition of Cato Connects. I'm Caleb Brown. I'm the Director of Multimedia here at the Cato Institute. And, of course, we're talking about the Iran nuclear deal with Cato's John Glazer and Emma Ashford. Uh, they've written a new uh, policy analysis, which is called Unforced Error, the Risks of Confrontation with Iran. And uh, we're going to get to directly to some questions about that. But first, um, some quotes here from people inside and outside of the uh, administration. Uh, and if you have any questions, I want to say that uh, go ahead and tweet those out to uh, Cato Connects uh, with a hashtag Cato Connects or at C.O. Brown. Uh, you can also place those questions on Facebook Live and we'll get to as many as we can over the course of the next half hour or so. So this is from David Cohen, former deputy director of the CIA. He says, if Trump withdraws from the Iran nuclear deal based on intelligence viewed as politicized, there would be little hope that our European allies, not to mention the Russians and the Chinese, would cooperate in reimposing sanctions, much less join us in military uh, action. So uh, give us a sense of where this stands right now. Uh, Donald Trump has signaled, it seems, that uh, he is going to decertify uh, Iran's compliance with the JCPOA. What does that mean? Well, after the 2015 uh, Iran nuclear deal was signed, Congress passed legislation requiring the president to every 90 days certify to Congress that Iran is complying and that the deal remains in the U.S. interests. Um, everybody agrees that Iran is in technical compliance with this. The International Atomic Energy Agency agrees, the Europeans, the Chinese, the Russians, much of Trump's own cabinet. Um, you know, Secretary of Defense James Mattis thinks we ought to stay in it. The uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Dunford, also agrees. The U.S. intelligence community assesses that Iran is in compliance. Um, and so, but Trump seems intent on decertifying anyways, apparently to satisfy his animus toward his predecessor's legacy, uh, to, um, you know, complete his, one of his campaign promises, perhaps. Um, but there are real risks to doing this. Um, first of all, if, if he decertifies and Congress reimposes nuclear-related sanctions, that could unravel the deal. Uh, that could forfeit all of the unprecedented transparency that we now have on Iran's nuclear program as a result of the deal. Uh, and it will put the United States and Iran back in tension, back on the path to conflict. Um, so we'll have to see precisely how it plays out. Um, but there are very real risks with, with doing this, especially in an unprovoked way. All right. This is uh, from Rex Tillerson, who's the U.S. Secretary of State. This is in June. He says, our policy towards Iran is to push back on this hegemony, contain their ability to develop obviously nuclear weapons, and to work towards support of those elements inside of Iran that would lead to a peaceful transition of that government. Where is he as compared with Donald Trump and the people within his administration who are presumably pushing for decertification. The interesting thing is that there are divisions within the administration on the issue of decertification. And that quote doesn't quite represent those divisions because Rex Tillerson, along with Jim Mattis and several others, is actually among the people who want to stay in the JCPOA. That doesn't mean, though, that they don't want to take a harder line towards Iran in general. So there's this kind of smaller debate that we're having inside the Trump administration, which is should Trump recertify Iranian compliance, accept the conclusions of his intelligence community, 
community and all these other people and say to Congress, Iran is in compliance. And then there's the broader debate about what should the overall U.S. approach to Iran be that sort of covers and subsumes this debate. So most people in the administration are to some extent Iran hawks, but they differ on whether they actually want to withdraw from the JCPOA as, as part of that approach. All right. So we have a, a few clips here. One is a very short clip from uh, James Mattis, followed by Federica Mongherini of the uh, European Union and then Donald Trump. Uh, Secretary Mattis, very quick, short answer question. Uh, do you believe it's in our national security interest at the present time to remain in the JCPOA? Yes, Senator, I do. Just chaired uh, a meeting of the ministers, foreign ministers of China, the Russian Federation, the United States, France, Germany, the UK, and Iran, during which we discussed the implementation of the nuclear deal. We have agreed on the fact that uh, all sides uh, are implementing so far fully the agreement. The Iran deal was one of the worst and most one-sided transactions the United States has ever entered into. Frankly, that deal is an embarrassment to the United States, and I don't think you've heard the last of it, believe me. Right. That uh, was a very short, again, line from James Mattis saying, yes, we probably should stay on this deal. What does it mean to have uh, two people, two secretaries who are probably the most relevant people to, to decide that, yes, the United States should remain in the JCPOA to be saying that, and yet these other voices. We have John Bolton here uh, who says, this effort should be the administration's highest diplomatic priority, commandeering or commanding all necessary time, attention, and resources. We can no longer wait to eliminate the threat posed by Iran. The administration's justification of its decision will demonstrate to the world that we understand the threat to our civilization. We must act and encourage others to meet their responsibilities as well. So what, is, what does it mean that you have not one but two and several others, uh, very high-level people in the administration, were saying, we need to stay in this. The reason why we need to stay in the JCPOA, why these men are saying that we need to stay inside the JCPOA, is if we withdraw from the nuclear deal right now, America is the one that will look bad. It won't be Iran. It won't be the Europeans. They may even stay in some version of the deal without us. It will look like America has said we won't uphold our commitments. And even though Iran is complying, we are going to withdraw. Um, and so Donald Trump's motive in doing this appears to be largely political. He promised his base that he would uh, withdraw from the nuclear deal, that he would rip it up. Um, he says he will negotiate a better deal. But it's not at all clear that he can do that. In fact, most uh, experts believe that he can't possibly get a better deal um, and that ripping up the deal in order to do so will actually end up setting us on a much more confrontational path with Iran. Yeah, and so uh, what's important to point out in this respect is that part of the reason we were able to get such a good deal, part of the reason we were able to impose on Iran what experts call the most intrusive inspections regime in the world is because we had international support for the effort. Uh, the P5 plus one, Germany, France, 
Britain, the United States, China, Russia. We all cooperated in multilateral sanctions to pressure Iran to bring them to the table. And we all engaged in meticulous and long drawn out arduous negotiations to get to a point where we could, we could agree with that. If Trump pulls out and the United States is isolated, there's no way we can impose a better deal for us on Iran with less leverage, less international support, fewer allies in the effort. So he's, uh, he's really setting us up to have less uh, and, and less to do uh, in terms of uh, imposing some kind of better deal. It's just not really in the cards. And it, it's interesting the way that uh, the discussion about this from people who are opponents of the JCPOA, they talk about it as if there might be some better deal out there. Right. And it's, but that, that part of it's never, it's never discussed in terms of, well, why didn't we get these things out of this deal? And there's, there's this ephemeral thing out there that seems to be waiting in the wings if we just scrap what we've got. Yeah, so you're exactly right that the opponents of the deal tend not to s detail what a better deal would look like. But, while they, but what they do do is they focus on the parts of the deal that they find unsatisfying. So the fact that some elements of the deal, some restrictions on Iran, start to expire at 10, 15, 20, 25 years, they've identified this as a real problem and tried to claim that it's a security threat. The problem is what they're saying is we should get out of the deal and unburden Iran from the deal's restrictions and make that those, all those restrictions, all those capabilities for Iran to start building up its nuclear program a reality tomorrow. Uh, and that's just bad logic. And I think it's important to remember that the JCPOA is one of the most, as John said, one of the most intrusive inspections regimes that any country has ever agreed to on nuclear technology. Achieving a better deal than the one we have right now, where Iran has uh, opened its nuclear program up to inspectors, agreed to accept inspections and conditions that no other country has to do to have civilian nuclear energy. Those are already massive concessions. It's not at all clear that the Iranian government is capable or in any way willing of making further concessions. We talk about Iranian hardliners, but there are some here in the U.S. as well. This is Tom Cotton. Uh, he's a Republican U.S. senator from Arkansas. He said the president should decline to certify, not primarily on the grounds related to Iran's technical compliance, but rather based on the long catalog of the regime's crimes and perfidy against the United States as well as the deal's inherent flaws and weakness. So Tom Cotton, uh, if you read the other parts of his comment that he, he made on October 3rd, it seems that he wants to start the clock uh, on a countdown to military action against Iran. Is that fair? Yeah, I, I would agree. One of, the, one of the analytical problems with Tom Cotton's assessment and others like it is that it has this insanely misplaced overconfidence in the effectiveness of military threats and force. Uh, and they seem to think that if you threaten Iran uh, bad enough uh, and you sanction them hard enough, they will capitulate. Uh, that's frequently not the case. You've got to go with a carrots and sticks approach where the adversary has the opportunity to uh, make concessions in exchange for some uh, concessions in return. We have to be able to deal with them diplomatically. We can't just browbeat them into capitulation. Um, the other problem with that is that the advocates of the deal love to emphasize Iran's general bad behavior, their support for terrorist groups, 
their development of ballistic missiles, their, their sort of rhetoric uh, that's anti-American, etc. And they use this as evidence that we shouldn't have the nuclear deal. The problem with that is why would they want to have a, an Iran that's close to a nuclear bomb uh, rather than an Iran that is far away from a nuclear Iran? You can deal with all the negative aspects of Iran's foreign policy and domestic aspects uh, it, it'd be better to do that with the deal so that we can have, a, you know, 20, perhaps longer, 20 years or, or 25 years, perhaps longer, to, uh, to deal with them in the other respects. Yeah, to, to be honest, this is, um, in some ways, the deal, the arguments against the deal that some of the opponents, particularly people like Tom Cotton, are making, um, he's, he's one of the more blunt ones, but the arguments are often very disingenuous. It's typically about small minutiae in the nuclear deal that they say Iran isn't complying on, but, you know, it's actually not really about compliance. This is just a part of the deal that was perhaps a little loosely written. Um, and all of that is basically the cover for the fact that these people would like to take a much harder line towards Iran in general. It's not so much about negotiating a, a better nuclear deal as it is about finding Iran wanting in any number of respects in international relations and wanting to take action on it. All right. So we have, uh, if you'd like to ask a question to John Glazer and Emma Ashford about the Iran nuclear deal and its prospects, uh, please do so via Twitter. You can use the hashtag CatoConnects. You can also ask us a question uh, if you're watching this on Facebook Live right there uh, on Facebook Live. We have a question here from Root Radical, uh, and this speaks to the subject matter of your paper. What are po possible outcomes if U.S. pulls out of JCPOA? Is it realistic that Europe keeps the deal alive? Uh, how will they in practice? So this is important. Um, the Iranian government has said publicly that if the United States backs out, they'll continue to stay in the deal so long as the other parties do. So as long as the Europeans, as long as the Russians, as long as the Chinese continue to lift sanctions in exchange for Iranian compliance with its obligations, they will stay in the deal. The risk here, though, is that if, if President Trump decertifies and Congress reimposes sanctions, that's going to bolster the position of the hardliners in Iran that never wanted the deal in the, in the first place. Uh, and so it's going to be politically kind of untenable for Iran to continue to comply with the deal, even while the United States makes threats of military action, tries to ratchet up sanctions, and so on. Uh, so it's possible that the deal stays in place without the United States, and we could be isolated and the rest of the world can continue with it. But it's also possible that it could unravel, and that's a very real risk. All right. So another question here from Ali Sarsak. How would decertifying the Iran deal benefit Israel hurt the U.S.? Well, it's not at all clear that it actually would benefit Israel. And in fact, there have been a number of um, particularly former Israeli officials, former Israeli government officials, intelligence officials that have been here in D.C. for a number of weeks now um, lobbying, explaining their position and basically arguing that the JCPOA is in Israel's best interests. And so even inside Israel, we see that there is a divide. There are some very conservative politicians, people like Benjamin Netanyahu, who they do want to see the deal go away. But the vast majority of the Israeli security and military apparatus are actually quite keen to keep the deal because they see it as constraining Iran in one important area, even if it doesn't solve every problem in the Iranian relationship. 
All right. If you have questions for John Glazer and Emma Ashford, you can tweet them at us uh, with the hashtag Cato Connects or uh, enter them into the Facebook Live chat window if you're watching us via Facebook Live. So uh, your paper uh, details essentially four uh, ways of dealing with Iran that do not involve the current uh, mm -hmm. nuclear deal. Let's take those in turn. Sure. Let's give us the first one. So the first one is sanctions, uh, and this is an approach where the United States would try to reimpose nuclear-related sanctions and other kinds of sanctions related to Iran's ballistic missile program, their human rights record, et cetera. Um, the fundamental problem with this one is that we don't have multilateral support. And without that kind of leverage, we don't have much direct bilateral trade with Iran, so it's not going to really uh, put pressure on them in the way that sanctions in the lead-up to the JCPOA did. The second problem was that Sanctions on their own are not a very good foreign policy tool and that they don't actually yield positive results in terms of altering the behavior of the targeted state. Uh, it's only the case, especially on really important national security issues. That sometimes happens, but again, you need international support, lots of economic pressure, and the prospect for having those sanctions lifted. And if Iran doesn't see that prospect under a harder line administration that doesn't seem to want to negotiate, it's very unlikely that they'll capitulate. So a couple of the other options that we explore in the paper um, are the idea of pushing back against Iran in the region. So this would be um, working against uh, Iranian proxies, groups like Hezbollah in uh, Syria, Iranian proxies in Iraq, uh, things like that. Um, and this has been suggested a number of times. So this would involve some military action, probably mostly backing local groups, um, but also potentially some U.S. soldiers. And again, we, when we examine this option, we find that it's really problematic, um, not least because there aren't that many groups we could back. So most of the burden will fall on U.S. servicemen, putting them in danger um, and increasing the risks to troops in Iraq, in Syria, well outside the scope of, of anything that we're actually doing towards Iran. Um, so this approach in the region is actually pretty costly, and it's not really likely to yield much in the way of benefits. So the third option that we explore is so-called regime change from within. This is uh, in a policy supported by some that we ought to support Iranian opposition groups in the hopes that they could foment domestic unrest and possibly overthrow the regime. Um, this is really kind of hopelessly infeasible policy. On the one hand, there are no viable candidates for U.S. support. One of the favored by uh, uh, conservative hawks is the Mujahideeni Kalk. It's a or MEK. Uh, this is an Islamist group that was designated by the State Department as a terrorist organization up until the year 2012. Um, and they've lobbied pretty hard uh, some people in Washington to get kind of support and depict themselves as sort of de exiled Democrats from Iran. Uh, they're not a viable candidate. And they have no support base inside Iran, and that's pretty crucial. Uh, other people point to the so-called Green Movement, which is this movement of moderates who rose up in the aftermath of the contested 2009 presidential elections in Iran. Um, but these are people that want to work inside the political system in Iran. They've never articulated any intention to try to overthrow the government. And they, want, they have political ambitions inside Iran, which would evaporate uh, at any whiff of U.S. support for regime change. Um, finally, the final point on this is that regime change very rarely works. 
It's not the case that it's easy to just unseat a current government and establish a new one in its place. And even in those cases where it has worked, it tends to fail or blow back in our face. Conveniently, it, it has happened with Iran. Uh, in 1953, the United States and Great Britain participated in a covert coup, which overthrew, overthrew a flawed but democratically elected regime. And we imposed in its place a dictatorship, which was pretty nasty. And then in 1979, a group of uh, radical, nationalist, religious groups overthrew the government and uh, sort of developed this narrative of anti-Americanism given their recent past. And it didn't really, that's the government we're dealing with today. So it, these things don't end well. Just very quickly, um, the, the final option that we look at in the paper is, is also the most extreme. It's direct military action against Iran. Um, and the form that this would probably take would be some kind of strikes on Iranian nuclear sites or Iranian military sites, sort of the kind of thing that the Bush administration con considered back in 2006, 2007, when they were getting increasingly concerned about the Iranian nuclear program. Um, and I will just keep this very short and say that those military strikes would most likely escalate into a much larger conflict that would end up destabilizing another Middle Eastern country and dragging the U.S. further into that region's conflicts. This is this is not a good idea. So uh, go, go moving back in time a little bit before this deal was signed, what would make Iran want to sign a deal like this? Presumably, they saw what occurred in Libya uh, and in other countries and, you know, the whether we like it or not, countries with nukes are treated differently by the rest of the world. So what, so what brought them to the table? It's a combination of a, of a couple of things. As you suggest, um, the fact that the U.S. invaded Iraq undoubtedly had some impact on Iranian decision-making in trying to figure out what they were going to do about their nuclear program. But actually, the run-up to the JCPOA was much more about coordinated multinational pressure, a large multilateral sanctions agreement um, that ended up putting a lot of pressure on the Iranian economy. And I think it's particularly worth noting here that among those sanctions were a European Union ban on any Iranian imports of oil. That was about 20% of Iran's oil exports at that time. So this put a major burden on the Iranian economy, which wouldn't necessarily be possible for us to achieve today. Um, and I also want to note on that issue of was it the threat of military force that made Iran come to the negotiating table? There's another argument which says the exact opposite, which says, look at the North Koreans. The North Koreans themselves have explicitly stated that they got nuclear weapons, that they sought to have a nuclear deterrent because of what the US did in Libya, because of what the US did in Iraq. So we could quite easily end up disincentivizing uh, Iran from making a nuclear weapon, or we could end up incentivizing them to do so. Yeah, a big part of this uh, that's worth mentioning is not just that Iran was under pressure. It's also that the Iranian government, uh, largely because of the opinion of much of their population, made a decision that they'd rather open themselves up to free trade, be a part of the international community, um, and have better relations, particularly with the West, um, instead of further isolate themselves by becoming a rogue regime with a nuclear deterrent uh, in the way that North Korea is. North Korea has its uh, security uh, sort of secured uh, by its nuclear deterrent, but it's 
desperate in terms of its economic straits, and it has no allies to uh, continue sort of furthering its own interests. Okay, so with respect to Iran, what to what what where does economics play into them coming to the table and agreeing to this deal? Well, um, as as John mentioned, the uh, the Iranian population actually the vast majority support the idea of greater economic openness. They support the idea of becoming more integrated into the world economy, and particularly young uh, Iranians believe that free markets and opening up to the world is how they will see a more prosperous Iran in the future. And so those attitudes helped in part to shape the government's opinions in whether they would come and actually talk about the nuclear program. And so we talk about the nuclear deal and we talk about Iran as if it is this uh, state, it's a monolithic entity, it's all one thing. But actually, the nuclear deal was the result of Iranian internal politics. The vast majority of the people who are starting to become more vocal, more accepting of you know, economic openness, want better relations with the West, and a small group of hardliners that wanted to preserve the nuclear program um, and did not want to have the negotiations. So keeping the JCPOA strengthens that growing majority and weakens the hardliners. Another question here from Ali. Thank you very much, Ali. Uh, this is via Twitter. Who is advising the president that the JCPOA is a, quote, bad deal? And what do they say is bad about it? Uh, hardly anyone that I'm aware of at, at, a, at the high level uh, uh, in the administration is advising him to pull out of the deal. I think he's made clear to his cabinet and in public, he's put himself in public on the line on this, that he wants to get out of it, that it's a bad deal, etc. And so in order to sort of not seem like he's backtracking and to continue to seem tough, uh, I think his administration is trying to find a way that he can decertify uh, but stay in the deal. And so that's what the kind of quote-unquote adults in the room are trying to uh, uh, do. And what they might be trying to do is encourage Congress not to reimpose sanctions after decertification. Uh, and that's a way for, that's a kind of uh, get out of jail free card for Trump where he can decertify, express his, uh, his disappointment with the deal, but not affect United States participation in it by reimposing sanctions. I think also um, John's right that inside the administration there aren't many people advising Trump to pull out of the deal, but there are a number of external voices. Um, the think tank, the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, that's always been very hawkish on these issues, have been strongly supportive of Trump ripping up the deal, and and there have been a number of outside people, people like. Tom Cotton in the Senate, people like John Bolton, who was the UN ambassador under George W. Bush. Um, and these are the same people who, before the nuclear deal was signed, they called for the US to take military action against Iran. These are the same people that for years have been calling for regime change in Iran. And so it's kind of hard not to view their discussions about the JCPOA as anything other than an opportunistic way to try and worsen U.S.-Iranian relations again. So who are the strongest voices? You said that they're, it's hard to pick out who they are in the administration. Well, that seems fairly troublesome if that's the case. Strongest voices in favor of the deal? Uh, no, in opposition. Uh, there were some lower-level people in the National Security Council early on. Uh, many of those people have been fired with the rise of uh, H.R. McMaster and John Kelly, uh, Steve Bannon has left the administration, Ezra Cohen-Watnick was one of the Iran hawks that was advocating we pull out. So there were a number of people 
uh, but they all seem to have scattered about. Um, and the success in terms of who the president surrounds himself with is H.R. McMaster, James Mattis, Rex Tillerson, and these voices, most of whom say we should stay in the deal. But I think what's really interesting to note here is that the impetus for this does appear to be coming from Donald Trump himself. He railed on the campaign trail about how the Iran deal was the worst deal ever and he would rip it up on his first day in office. And even though basically every advisor that he has is telling him that Iran is in compliance, that this is a bad deal, that this will make uh, that th- this will make the U.S. look bad, that this will weaken us in a national security sense, Trump appears determined to to plow ahead with it. So this is kind of indicative of broader foreign policy inside the Trump administration, which is the president doesn't always make the decisions that his advisors would like him to make. All right. So, John, you mentioned something that may seem like a middle ground and maybe not a very happy medium, but not the worst uh, outcome, which is Donald Trump gets to decertify, which is the president's prerogative at uh, at every 90 days, but the United States does not end up withdrawing from the deal. What does that look like a few months or a few years out? Well, so there's a couple of things going on. The first thing we have to consider is how likely is it that Congress doesn't reimpose. Number one, it's kind of likely because it seems the administration is uh, making that an explicit part of their policy. Don't reimpose sanctions while I decertify. The second thing that's encouraging is that prominent members of the, of the president's own party, including Rand Paul, uh, Ed Royce, who's the uh, chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee in, in the House, uh, Je- Senator Jeff Flake, you know, lots of people are saying we want to stay in the deal. We don't want to unburden Iran from the restrictions while they've benefited from uh, sanctions relief. So that's positive. That's It's po- certainly possible that this is the way things could go. The other thing that I've heard some rumors about in some reports is that uh, Rex Tillerson, working with members of Congress, wants to do something to get rid of the piece of legislation that was passed after the Iran nuclear deal to unburden the president from having to decertify or certify every 90 days. Uh, And that will kind of, again, it's a kind of escape pod for President Trump to be able to not have to constantly... Uh, sign on and put his imprimatur on the on the deal, uh, but also for Congress to be able to continue to lift sanctions. So where is Congress in all of this? What is the expectation, or do we have one, about how Congress would react to decertification? Well, Congress is, they're not obligated to react in response to this, but they do have a window of 60 days after Trump um, basically says, I'm decertifying, Iran is not compliant with the deal. Congress has 60 days to decide whether they're going to snap back the nuclear sanctions on Iran. Um, and they don't necessarily have to take up legislation to do that, um, but they they probably will. Um, and so this may end up coming down to a debate in Congress over whether Congress thinks the JCPOA is worth staying in or not. Um, and in that, this is, again, very similar to a lot of Trump's sort of other policy areas, how he's been with the DACA, the the Dreamers Act, where he tried to pump that back to Congress and various other initiatives. So he, in one sense, is making a decision here. And in another sense, he's basically kicking it to Congress and saying, you decide. Is I mean, is there any sense of what he actually thinks about this other than I made a campaign promise and now I need to follow through on it? Well, I've seen zero evidence that Trump is familiar with the details of the deal itself. 
he seems not to be interested in what it actually does for Iran, what it actually does for the United States. He seems uninterested in uh, investigating what parts of Iran's nuclear program are now under inspection and, and uh, what restrictions they have to comply with and so on. Um, all he said is very surface-level assessments like good, bad, worst deal ever, etc. Um, and so what he actually thinks, I think he's pretty honest about what he thinks, and that's that he wants to decertify the deal. The question is why. Uh, that's something that he hasn't gone into very much. Uh, but as I said at the beginning, I really think it probably has to do with either his uh, animus towards his predecessor's legacy and wanting to kind of undo uh, that aspect, and also keeping a campaign promise, which, you know, he ran a campaign that was kind of remarkably lacking in policy details and substance. Um, and one of those aspects was the Iran nuclear deal, and, but now he's on the hook for it. So, All right. So you, you talked about being, the president being uh, finding himself unburdened from having to recertify or make a decision about certification every 90 days. Could that be construed as a flaw in the deal? No, definitely not. Um, okay. So th there are two different things going on here. One is the, the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which is the deal that was negotiated between the US, some European countries, Russia, China, and Iran. And that is the international deal. It's the one that uh, lifted the UN Security Council sanctions. And that's the one that other countries uh, are all members of. And then there is this um, corker card in legislation, which was passed by Congress um, during the negotiation of the nuclear deal. And it basically um, was designed to allow Congress to have a vote and say whether they thought the nuclear deal was a good idea or not. Um, President Obama chose not to make this a treaty. Um, and this legislation was designed to give Congress a say in the issue. The problem is that it also included this requirement that the president certify every 90 days to Congress that Iran is complying. So in some ways, this is Congress's own legislation that they set up to basically tie Obama's hands two years ago. It's coming back to bite them now with a Republican president who doesn't necessarily listen to Congress. All right. Uh, any final thoughts on where you think this is headed? Uh, the president just before uh, this weekend began indicated very strongly that he would uh, decertify. And here we are. It's Monday and the deadline is the 15th, I believe, mm -hmm. in order to make that decision. Uh, it, what advice would you offer? Look, I think that uh, we have to ask ourselves a question here. Uh, do we want to continue to ratchet up tensions with another major power in the Middle East? Do we want to continue to talk about the prospect of war or conflict or proxy war or regime change? Do we want to drag ourselves in to another profoundly costly, in terms of blood and treasure, conflict in that region? Or do we want to choose to recognize the facts, which is that the Iran nuclear deal has, has significantly rolled back Iran's nuclear capabilities. It's given us greater transparency, more than we could even imagine prior to the deal itself. Um, and it's improving Iran's connections in terms of trade and economics with the rest of the world, which very well could have a positive influence on the future of U.S.-Iran relations, Iran relations with, with Europe, and so on. Uh, that is a pretty easy choice, in my opinion. 
Uh, so it's up to Congress. It's going to be a close vote, but I think some responsible members of the Republican Party uh, are leaning towards not reimposing sanctions, so we'll have to see. I think the other place that we'll have to watch over the next couple of months as Congress considers this issue as we talk about the nuclear deal is we also have to talk about the Trump administration's broader approach to Iran. Um, and Donald Trump is supposed to be giving a speech later this week in which he lays out not only what he's going to do about certification or decertification, but also his administration's broader approach to Iran. Um, and as, as we talk about in the report, ideally what we would like to see with Iran is that we slowly start to move towards a slightly better U.S.-Iranian relationship, that we keep the JCPOA, that we build on the success of that agreement to talk to Iran about other issues that we're unhappy about, whether it's missiles, whether it's, uh, you know, anti-democratic things inside the country, and that slowly over time we end up reducing tensions between the two countries, that the moves that Trump appears set to take would do the exact opposite. All right, uh, Emma, we're going to give you the last word. The paper, again, is Unforced Error, The Risks of Confrontation with Iran by John Glazer and uh, Emma Ashford here at the Cato Institute. Please join us again for another edition of Cato Connects. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and we'll talk to you again next time. presidential campaign, Donald Trump repeatedly railed against the worst deal ever, as he called the Iranian nuclear deal. His administration seems determined to follow through on that promise, whether by withdrawing from the JCPOA entirely or taking a more confrontational approach to Iran in other areas. Yet the Iran nuclear deal is working. Though there are several alternative approaches that the Trump administration could take towards Iran, none of them are likely to succeed and all of them are likely to worsen U.S.-Iranian relations while inflaming the Middle East even more. The first alternative option the Trump administration could pursue is renewing or adding economic sanctions. There are a couple of problems with this. First of all, U.S. allies, who strongly support the nuclear deal, are opposed to new sanctions on Iran. They believe the deal is working and will blame the United States if it fails. European countries in particular are unlikely to go along with the Trump administration in imposing new sanctions on Iran. Their governments are likely to push back strongly on this issue. And finally, sanctions rarely work in producing policy change. New sanctions on Iran have very little chance of actually producing better results or creating a better deal. The second option is challenging Iranian influence in the region. There are several problems with this approach as well. First of all, America's Middle Eastern allies are not united on the question of Iran. There are no coherent group of forces in the region that we could rely upon that could easily push back against Iranian proxies or influence. This strategy also puts more of the burden on the United States, pulling us deeper into regional conflicts, undermining the campaign against ISIS, and increasing the risk to U.S. forces deployed in the region. The third alternative option for the Trump administration is so-called regime change from within, a strategy that would back Iranian pro-democracy groups in their quest to overthrow the Iranian regime. Again, there are problems with this approach. Most of the groups that are suggested by advocates of this approach are either insignificant, unpopular, 
or unwilling to work with the United States. Academic research in recent history also shows that regime change rarely works, and when it does work, it typically doesn't produce a stable, friendly regime. Fourth and final option is direct military action. President Trump has no legal authorization to engage in a preventive war against Iran, either from Congress or under international law. Even small-scale military confrontation is likely to escalate very quickly, requiring substantial U.S. force commitments and increasing the risk of retaliatory strikes. A large-scale conflict could be costlier than the Iraq and Afghanistan wars combined. Finally, attacking Iran after the successful signing of the nuclear deal will only add to global suspicions that the United States engages in regime change without provocation and cannot be trusted to uphold its commitments. And this will only increase the incentive for states to seek a nuclear deterrent. So what's the alternative? The US must seek to uphold the JCPOA and build on a successful nuclear deal for cooperation in other areas of US-Iranian relations. This process might not solve every problem that we have with Iran today, but continued engagement is the best way to ensure better relations over the long term.